Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. You're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Darren Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Today, Wednesday the 17th of June, is a momentous occasion. We are recording our 50th episode, a milestone Alan and I did not in any way envisage when we recorded our first episode on the rules-based international order back in late July of 2018. It has been a very busy few years for Australia and the world, both the country and the podcast. And we want to thank all of you, those few hundred who have been with us from the beginning and the few thousand who have joined us along the way. We're honoured and humbled, really, uh, by having you with us. To celebrate this milestone, we have another very special guest who joins Alan in studio in Canberra with me calling in. But before I pass it over to Alan, can I thank Maddie Gordon for her help with editing today and Rory Stenning for our theme music. And can I also acknowledge all the other interns we've had along the way. Without all of your assistance, we could not have pulled this off. And with that, over to you, Alan. Thanks, Darren. And let me just echo that sentiment. Here's to the interns. Look, it's an enormous pleasure to uh, celebrate our 50th episode by being able to introduce Australia's most senior diplomat and foreign policy official, Francis Adamson, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Francis graduated from the University of Adelaide before joining DFAT in 1985. For a good part of her diplomatic career, she focused on China. She was ambassador in Beijing from 2011 to 2015, served in the Consulate General in Hong Kong in the late 1980s, and from 2001 to 2005, she was seconded as representative to the Australian Commerce and Industry Office in Taipei. She was also posted twice in London, including as Deputy High Commissioner. She has many firsts to her name, including, of course, as the first woman to head DFAT. But perhaps less often noted is that she is the first person ever, male or female, to have been Senior International Advisor to a Liberal Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and Chief of Staff to a Labor Foreign Minister, Stephen Smith. And if that doesn't strike you as a remarkable personal accomplishment, you don't know much about Australian politics. Welcome to the podcast, Francis. Thanks very much, Alan. And great to see you too, Darren. I can't think of a time when the job of heading one of Australia's great departments of state has been harder. Like all workplaces, DFAT's operations have been disrupted by COVID-19, but with the added complication that you also have the responsibility of ensuring safe working conditions for Australian diplomats and their families, as well as local staff at Australia's network of overseas posts around the world, and that's involved pulling some of them back to Australia. At the same time, DFAT has been managing a huge global consular operation, I don't know if it's the largest ever, you're nodding, <laughs> helping stranded Australians to return home and assisting foreign missions here. And I don't think people have appreciated that either repatriate their own nationals. 
the economic implications of the pandemic, including what what it means for supply chains, are adding more uncertainty to an already stressed global trade environment. Tourism, another of the department's responsibilities, has screeched to an emergency stop. And the entire aid budget has been refocused and redrawn around the regional response to COVID-19. As regular listeners to this podcast know, the world in which all this is happening is more testing for Australia than anything we've encountered in the past 70 years. Something is going to follow the post-World War II international order, which has now all ended, but we don't yet know what. So a general question first, really. How are you personally and your colleagues handling all this? What's it like in the middle of the tempest and what have you had to learn quickly? Alan, uh, look, thanks very much for the introduction. I think you covered extremely well, actually, the, the challenges that we're facing. And of course, no one person in the department is has actually got their sleeves rolled up dealing with every single one of those, although I've got my sleeves rolled up helping colleagues deal with a number of them. But across the board, I think my colleagues and I, whether overseas or at home, whether continuing to do the work they were doing previously, or as is the case with at one point, 80% of the department redeployed onto COVID work. There's been a very strong sense of purpose. I mean, it's sort of built into our psyche, if you like, that a DFAT responds well in a crisis, in a normal crisis. Now, we've never seen anything quite like this before. It's been crisis writ large, and, and elements of that continue very strongly, including faced by my colleagues overseas. But, I mean, a really big challenge. And as always, when a challenge, it's not that we never thought a pandemic might happen. Pandemic was always, you know, somewhere on everyone's list of things that might constitute risks. And in fact, even in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, there's a a reference to global health challenges. So it's always there, but it wasn't at the top of anybody's list. And I think, you know, there's always that moment in a crisis where the adrenaline starts pumping, you start thinking about what you need to do, you know you need to act, there's almost not time to really think about it and we needed very quick action, particularly on the part of my colleagues overseas. We've maintained operations at all of our overseas posts during this period, albeit in a number of cases with uh, drawdowns of staff. But they've helped, and I want to really take my hat off to all of them, they've helped uh, something like 27,500 Australians return home Here in Canberra, we've fielded something like 70,000 phone calls since the 21st of January from Australians wanting and needing our help. And we've received a lot of very, very heartfelt thank yous. Not everyone's necessarily been deliriously happy all the time, but that's given everyone a real lift too. In terms of what you need to do differently, when you're in a crisis, you're very open, I think, to what is needed to get something done. And we've had to sort of kick in new governance arrangement. I think I mentioned in an Institute of Public Administration of Australia podcast, at a certain point my chief operating officer had taken me aside and said, you're normally very inclusive and very consultative, now's the time for directive. So I got on my directive, uh, (laughs) pulled out that gear and, and was able to, I think, as everybody was, able to really pull together. So... Lots of questions flow from all of that, but everyone's feeling exhausted, I think, but most people are feeling pretty good, even though there are 
understandably high levels of anxiety. You mentioned my responsibility for the welfare of staff. In some parts of the world, the really anxious times continue and perhaps are even still to come. Mm. Francis, Alan has previously described diplomacy as software. How might COVID-19 allow us to upgrade this software to a new version? The tradecraft of diplomats is travel and meetings. But what happens when these become much more costly in expense or in risk and perhaps increasingly impossible? Are there any previously unthinkable ways of conducting diplomacy that are now being done? And could these changes be permanent? What will DFAT need to get better at? Well, look, there are a lot of questions there. I've just come from the National Press Club where, of course, it's one question yes. at a time and I'm, a, I'm tempted to try and sort of impose that discipline here. But look, I think for some of your devoted followers, and it really is wonderful, I should, you know, should have said it out, it's fantastic to be here for the 50th, and I'm sure you'll go on to the 100th, that you have a sesquicentenary at some point. It's a fantastic thing. I'm a, I'm a big fan, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be in the studio, as, as your introductory words, Darren, are sort of set live rather than me listening in podcasts. But of course, it's not at all surprising to people who live in a real world that we've had to adapt as much the same way everyone else has. So I've had conversations, even formal bilateral meetings with counterparts across the world in a range of settings. Now, in days gone by, of course, I used the telephone, but often the default is you jump on a plane and you go and you have formal consultations at a table with flags there and delegations of colleagues. And, and that's been the way of doing it actually for hundreds of years, pretty much. I remember when I was with Prime Minister Morrison not so long ago, very early in the COVID period, though, it seems like a long time ago, when he did his first virtual summit with Prime Minister Lee Sien Lung of Singapore. And as the Prime Minister walked out of the Cabinet room, he sort of looked at me and he said, well, that was weird. But actually, that was the only time it felt weird because at every other summit he did, whether it was a, a G20 meeting or whether it was the week before last, a, a really excellent virtual summit with Narendra Modi or with his first mover group or with anyone else he's spoken to. Of course you can communicate. There are some aspects of, of communicating over open lines or WebExes or webinars or whatever the technology you use that are not secure and I think there's probably a bit of a challenge if diplomacy could really crack secure video communications widely around the world. I think that would be a, a breakthrough and I think that's something one of my colleagues and I, I won't say from which country we agreed it would be a really good idea if we could if we could do that and if it could be widely available. So I think that's one thing. But I've been thinking about it because we've been delighted we've been able to maintain contact. In fact, the foreign minister's overachieved. I mean, she's had, I don't know, 50 or 60 sort of bilateral engagements of a meaningful kind with counterparts. I mean, far more than she could have done in the same sort of three-month period. So for a country that is geographically where we are... There are considerable advantages to not having those 24 hours spent mm. flying to get to other parts of the world equally distant. So that's a sort of an obvious thing. But what are we missing? You miss the, the touch and the feel and the, the context, if you like. The world is changing very rapidly, and Alan made that point in his introduction. And, of course, we can get a sense of that from all of the ways that we absorb information now. But there's really no substitute... You don't have to do it all the time for every single thing, but you do need to do a bit of it. You actually have to go somewhere and you have not just a formal meeting with a counterpart, but you have a range of meetings and you get a, a beam mm. on what's actually happening in a place. Of course, 
our embassies and high commissions and consulates general are our eyes and ears on the world. And I must say their continued reporting has just been so valuable during this time. But there's still got to be a place for that personal experience, you know, the rapid changes that have taken place in cityscapes over, sometimes over years or over decades, the growing middle classes in various Mm. parts of the world, the technological change, the environmental impacts, the things that we do need to know and deeply understand. And I don't know about you, but whenever I travelled, I always came back knowing some things that I actually thought to myself, I couldn't have got that any Mm. other way. So, yes, we're making do, and in some respects we're doing really well, but I also think we need to think about what it means, particularly for a country like Australia in the world in which we find ourselves, to really deeply understand the drivers of change and how we can harness opportunity and how we can build our resilience. And, of course, there's the human dimension. There's nothing quite like being in the same room as someone even shaking a hand, which I haven't done for three months, and actually developing a rapport and a relationship and bonds of trust that serve you well when you're challenged. You mentioned the uh, 2017 foreign policy white paper before, and it was a fine and subtle document, I thought. It described, I'm quoting it, powerful drivers of change converging in a way that is reshaping the international order and challenging Australia's interest. But I reread it recently, and even though the the drafters were trying to look out 10 years, the changes seem to have come faster than they anticipated. So when you compare the world at the time the white paper came out and the one that you and your colleagues are now dealing with, what has surprised you most, the direction of change or the uh, pace? Oh, I'd have no hesitation in saying the pace. And again, it's not really surprising. I mean, I, I have a well-thumbed copy of this in my office and, of course, I have it in, you know, on my home screen as well, so I, I regularly look at it. It's only two and a half years since it was published, essentially. It was November 2017. I think it stands up pretty well in terms of its attempt to really think deeply about the world. I mean, remember that the team, we spent a year really thinking deeply about this and consulting widely. But even over the period of that year, when we look back, we could see the changes were underway. With hindsight, perhaps what we could have done is just dialed up the accelerator because your natural inclination is to think that whatever, you know, a lot changes in the last 12 months, so you project that into the future. We all know those straight line projections don't work. You're really looking at a much kind of steeper slope on things. But I actually think when it comes down to our interests in the Indo-Pacific region, a particular focus on the Pacific, which of course then gave rise to the creation of the Office of the Pacific, when it comes to the areas of opportunity, which we've really got to focus on at a time when uh, protectionist pressures are not just there as pressures, they're there as particular measures that many countries have adopted during COVID. But there's there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity for us, even in a depression, effectively. There's still great opportunity in, in the recovery period. And then, of course, there's you know, issues around a, a global order, a rules-based system. And for a country like us, I think the way we looked at, analysed it and described it, it stands up pretty well. A few changes, sure. Not the direction, though. Do you think there's a need for another 
foreign policy white paper? When you were doing it in 2017, did you have in your mind that like defence white papers that had come out regularly? I, I think when we published in 2017, it had been 14 years since we'd had a foreign policy white paper. I'd been a very strong proponent of it, including when I was in the Prime Minister's office before the 2016 election. And then, of course, I became Secretary of DFAT and had to implement the thing, which I was very uh, pleased to be given an opportunity to do. And there were quite a number of naysayers, as you might recall, Alan. Yeah, I was one of them. Well, I was, I was too polite to say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, I know you were. <laughs> but, but you converted me. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, well, and look, about 18 months or so, two years in, we thought, how can we refresh this? What do we need to do? Of course, it was an enormous amount of work, and I think it stands up pretty well. But within it, when we look at the way we view the Indo-Pacific and and policies around that. There's been an enormous amount of policy development in that space. So I'm not in a rush to do another one. I wouldn't say I've totally come around to your point of view at all. In fact, I haven't, not remotely. But I do think, and I've always advocated, I think it's important that there be an open conversation with the Australian people, part of the Prime Minister, ministers and others, about what's going on in the world and how we see it. A regional power with global interests. Well, we were that, we're still that. And that means then that there needs to be a dialogue. And at the moment, there's a lot being said in this, there's a lot being published. And I think that's one of the reasons your podcast has got such a following. People want to understand what's going on. I listen in sometimes to, to what my colleagues have to say. And I think to myself... You know, Rod Brazier and Sarah Moriarty, for example, talking about the South Pacific. I thought, that's fascinating. They've never told me that. So just understanding our world and the various perspectives on it is vitally important. It doesn't all have to come from a foreign policy white paper, but where there are changes in government policy, they need to be clearly articulated and enunciated and set out, just as the foreign minister did at the National Security College at ANU last night on Australia in a COVID world and in particular elements of the multilateral system. Let me take that a bit further. You know from your own personal experience Britain and the US well. Both these close partners of Australia are undergoing wrenching foreign policy change. Brexit divided the UK and under the America First slogan the US is jettisoning some of the traditional elements of its global leadership. I don't want to ask you about the particular issues here, but about something else that worries me. In both countries, if you had to pick all the elites repudiated by recent political developments, the foreign policy establishment must rank near the top. Washington think tanks are packed with abandoned Republicans who didn't want to serve under the Trump administration. I'm sure both of us know British diplomats who hoped and expected that Brexit would never come. The foreign policy debate seems less divisive here, and I guess there's still a broad professional consensus around the judgments in the 2017 foreign policy white paper, although Darren disagrees with me here. Have you thought about where our UK and US colleagues went wrong and what lessons we should learn? By we, I mean all of us engaged in in the effort to think about and shape Australian foreign policy in order to avoid that sort of of outcome. I mean, look, I have thought about it, of course, and I think a certain amount of modesty on the part of foreign policy practitioners, theorists, commentators, you know, we, we work in a particular world, but what we do has to be connected to a real world. And that 
that real world involves real people. That's one of the reasons, actually, we've had a couple of global heads of mission meetings since I've been secretary when we brought everyone back at once. Some countries do this often. We hadn't previously. We have a little bit of time in Canberra and then we send everyone out across the country. They literally fan out across the whole of Australia. And what they're there to do really is to listen to what Australians are telling them about the way they see the, the world opportunities, challenges, risks, the way they see us serving their interests or not. And it's also about uh, my colleagues talking about what we do overseas and the value that that brings. So it's a pretty basic thing in some respects, but there's something about that conversation, something about that, that listening and that engaging that I think is at the heart of the question that you're asking. Now, I I was personally surprised by Brexit, but my former British diplomat husband had told me the night before that he thought the outcome would be what it was. And we talked a lot about why that was. And there was something deep in the psyche of the British people, which is a small island, but a proud nation and a certain amount of independence and wanting to do things their way and not be beholden to any other structures or or supranational bodies or whatever it might be. Now, I won't go into the, the US situation either particularly, but there was a sort of long running and a, it was starting to be a burr in the saddle what the, the rest of the world was expecting the US to do. And I think that's been part of it too. You know, there are a lot of people who've written books about this. I've, I've read them. I've reflected on them. I, I think there is something there that we've got to be very mindful of and that is we've always got to be able to conduct a conversation with people who are living real lives and are impacted by the decisions that governments make. Now, I think Australian successive Australian governments have been very conscious of this. I think that's one of the reasons, actually, that there's been a, a strong and, from my point of view, very welcome element of bipartisanship about foreign policy broadly. That doesn't mean that there aren't a wide range of views within the major parties. There are clearly those. But I think when it comes to an understanding of what the national interest is, there is broad agreement on that. But I tell you, one of the things I do each year, almost as a sort of a check on this, how are we going, are we still broadly on track, is I look at the Lowy poll. And there are elements of that. I mean, some of the questions have stayed the same, some have changed. But but I always look at those and see what has changed significantly and what level of support do Australians maintain for let's just say broadly, open trade and investment arrangements, for example. Now, it's going to be fascinating to see next year, the year after, how that sort of holds up. But I think as I listen to my ministers in particular, to Simon Birmingham as Trade, Tourism and Investment Minister and Maurice Payne as Foreign Minister, I hear them talking to, it's not just their electorates in South Australia and New South Wales, but to people across Australia And, of course, there's a role for leadership. You have to explain why we do these things, why a leader needs to travel to summits, in fact, in pursuit of the national interest. So it's not that I I think the problem couldn't occur in Australia, but what I don't see is a single defining issue that eats away at us until we've fixed it. And I would worry deeply if we started to see evidence of that and I would be, or my experience would say, you've got to nip those sorts of things in the the bud. Mm. Sticking with this theme but zooming out somewhat, most would agree that the international system is unstable at the moment and that there are two trends 
driving this instability at least. One, as we've just been discussing, is a change in the domestic politics of the international order and centred around the balance between sovereignty on one hand and international rules and institutions on the other. And the second is simply world-fashioned changes in the balance of power. And that both of these trends are contributing to this disequilibrium, you might say. I don't want to ask about the present, but look forward, say, to 20 years' time or longer. How do you hope this order will settle? What does a stable equilibrium look like that meets Australia's interests while reflecting the potency and seeming inevitability of these two trends? You've got really good questions, you two, haven't you? <laughs> They're really sort of deep and complex. I mean... I suppose, and I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, and in fact, I even got a, a question in Senate Estimates not so long ago, actually, about what does an equilibrium look like? Because I think everyone's conscious of change, and there are elements of change that Australia sees ultimately as working in our favour, uh, working in the favour of a, of a region which remains peaceful and prosperous, which is able to deal with disputes and have them settled either bilaterally but, but in accordance with the international law. And clearly at a time of shifting power relativities, one of the things we can't see yet about COVID, I think we're, we sort of feel in Australia we're through this crisis stage. I think Australians can take a lot of comfort actually from the, from the way we've handled it. But I think it's probably still got quite a long way to play out in our own region and mm. in the world. And if we were to look at the relative size of economies in our region in five years' time or ten years' time, the trajectory of some of what we had taken for granted and what we'd captured in the white paper is probably going to be altered. Quite how, I'm not sure. We obviously see um, China looming uh, very large, but also you know, to our near north, I Indonesia, India, Japan, the ASEAN countries as a whole, is very much in Australia's interest that those developments, not just measured by GDP but by a range of other things as well, that they continue. And the region I've always hoped for and the region, the reason I think you know, most diplomats do what we do is a region where a couple of not just major powers but superpowers, however, whatever the word is going to be to describe... China and the United States on opposite ends of the Pacific, where there is a, a coexistence, where there's sort of healthy competition rather than, certainly rather than conflict. But I think there is a role for the rest of us in all of that too. And that's one of the reasons why the multilateral system, the, the, the terms multilateral system doesn't necessarily mean a lot to people who aren't practitioners, but you know, we're investing in international institutions that have a role to play, that we value. The World Health Organization has actually done a fantastic work in the South Pacific, across Southeast Asia. Now, you know, as the foreign minister said last night, there are some things about how things have operated in Geneva that we want to have a closer look at and that, that members need to have a say in. So it's not just elements of a system, it's what are these things there to do? And we recognise, having had a close look at all of this through the multilateral audit, that we've got to invest in it if we care about the outcomes and if we care about maintaining a, a rules-based order and if we care about ensuring that values that we've regarded as universal values remain, so then we're going to have to step up and contribute to that. What I also see throughout the region is a greater willingness on the part of a wide range of countries 
to actually have conversations with us about these sorts of things. So I think the region's pretty clear what it wants. What might not be so clear is how we can navigate this period of rapid change and, and have things actually settle. And I think from a Chinese perspective, I mean, China should be in no doubt that the region, countries of the region, will be respectful of its great power status when it when it reaches that point. Uh, but I think what all great powers need to realise also is you can command that respect in a wide variety of ways. And it doesn't have to be through the exercise of power or the exercise of coercion. And that's where the sovereignty point comes in. And I think we've had to become much more aware of sovereignty and the need to protect not just our sovereignty, but as the as the Prime Minister says, what sort of region do we want? A region of sovereign, independent states, resistant to coercion, certainly, but also open to collaboration uh, where it's in their mutual interests. So I think that there's going to have to be a conversation about how we get there. But increasingly, it's not there on the front pages of every newspaper. It's not there in the public domain. But the conversations that, that are necessary to bring that about I think are happening and happening much more frequently across our region. I was, go- I was going to ask you about the multilateral <clears throat> order a bit later, but I'll do it now in, in view of what you just uh, said. I listened last night to the foreign minister's speech and, and her strong reaffirmation of the commitment to a rules-based order. She described the audit that you were talking about that you've just done of participation in multilateral organisations as an extraordinary body of work. And that that struck me as really uh, well, tribute to you, but a tantalising. Uh, w- what did you do? Um, <laughs> Can you can you talk a bit more about the uh, the audit? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I can I can talk a little bit more about it, of course. But I I was one of the twelve or so people in the lecture theatre at ANU, so uh, I smiled when she said that. There was a lot of work involved in it. You were one of the I hear now, Alan, seven thousand people who listened to that lecture, either live or subsequently, and that in itself I think is worth registering because we're used to you go along and you might speak to a couple of hundred people in a lecture theatre and. People might have thought of recording it or putting a transcript out, but you know those those figures are worth thinking about. I think the foreign minister went on to say we'd looked at like something over a hundred bodies in within the UN system. We, we we had to draw the line somewhere, so UN and subsidiary bodies broadly, and we looked at more deeply at what they actually do. She mentioned a focus on standard-setting bodies as well. We looked at the history, really, of Australia's involvement in these bodies since the end of the Second World War and what they were sort of currently doing. And it's a, it's a sort of obvious point in a way. A lot of them, whether it's the International Tele- Telecommunications Union or whether it's the, the Postal Union or whether it's the World Maritime Organisation or the... the customs or, you know, she mentioned there's almost absolutely every area of sort of global interaction has got a body somewhere that sets standards or brings people together or helps solve problems. And although 
I think the Prime Minister's starting point perfectly reasonably was these interests, these bodies need to serve the interests of their members, bearing in mind that a lot of the governments involved are democratically elected and accountable to their people. So there was a, there's a perfectly sensible conversation to be had about all of that. So what we did was just a sort of thorough job that you expect us to do. We, did, we consulted widely across government. It was a genuinely whole-of-government review, and particularly at a time when things are changing, when security and stability are important, when there are new threats arising, you know, they can be in what we'd call ungoverned spaces, uh, in cyber, in, in space. There's actually an enormous amount out there that matters. Now, it won't come as a shock to any diplomats who've worked in uh, multilateral areas or, or to the many very capable Australians, actually, who've made their careers in those organisations and some of them have led them. I mean, Francis Gurry, for example, is just about to finish two terms as Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organisation. Twelve years. I mean, that's an enormous leadership uh, contribution, actually. But there are something like 1,200 Australians in the UN system all over the place. Very capable people, often unsung. I've met a lot of them. We're out to sort of make a difference we can make a difference, not as we used to say, necessarily because we're a good international citizen. It's not so much the way we see it, just in a hard-headed way, contributing to the norms and the rules and the the system that, that served us well, but we'll need to continue to reform if it's to serve the interests of its members, all of its members, going forward. Sounds as though that would be a, a, a great document to declassify. Eventually, Alan. Public. <laughs> Thanks. Francis, there's long been an idea in international relations literature about middle powers, let's call them, needing to husband their resources and political capital and look for specific niche opportunities to exercise their power and influence. A country like Australia cannot be everywhere and do everything at once because our resources are finite. And once you've squeezed every last drop of of efficiency out, Unless the amount of resources allocated increases, it must logically follow that for every step up, you might say, there needs to be an equal and opposite step down. Do you accept the premise that middle powers need to specialise? And if so, how should they do so in an interconnected world where issues of national interest are coming from so many directions? I wouldn't necessarily say that I accept the premise that middle powers need to specialise. But what I, what I see very clearly at the moment is that there is a, a role for middle powers, absolutely a, a role for middle powers. I mean, I described Australia previously as a regional power with global interests. I think of us as a capable country. There are many capable countries out there. Latvia, for example, just over the last few days in the UN brought forward a, a resolution which attracted a lot of support around disinformation. Now, you wouldn't necessarily think of Latvia as a middle power, but they they saw an opportunity and they were able to garner support, build support, develop a consensus and and do something that has actually got people thinking in a new way, talking in a new way and wanting to respond. In relation to my own department, in, in relation to what Australia does, we have to accept that the government gives us through the budget process a, a finite resource envelope that we've got to work within, whether it's our aid program or whether it's the departmental component Mm. of all of that. You know, there have been lots of ways of thinking about this and talking about it over the years, but essentially what we've got to be able to do in a more dynamic way than perhaps we've done in the past is 
we have to be able to reprioritize and that means deprioritize and we've got to be plugged into the world so that we can see opportunity but that we can also see risk we can see threat and part of again if i think about covid it it's been a period where dfat has worked intensively with our domestic policy counterparts where the insights of our post overseas have been able to bring back have been of keen interest to government so i think yeah, we can't do everything. We shouldn't try to do everything. We need to have, and and we're in the process of doing this, of course. It's a constant mm. process of discussion with government about how we can best serve the government's highest priority interests, Australia's highest priority interests. But of course, that means there are things that might once have been a priority that, relatively speaking, mm. aren't anymore. I mean, you just there's a bit of a danger in our business that whether it's on in the trade work we do or uh, traditional foreign policy or in the on the development side that you end up with so many priorities that actually everything's a priority and and that becomes meaningless so i think in the first year i was secretary i had 10 priorities i've now got 3 <laughs> and part of the reason for that is to send a signal that you can't keep expanding the hours in a in a working day and part of course the language that people will be hearing the Prime Minister and Ministers use is the language of partnership and not just traditional partners but non-traditional partners and it's about identifying problems and trying to solve them and bringing at the leader level or bringing I mean the G7 plus for example or or at the regional level I mean Another thing COVID's done is just remind us in our own region of the importance of ASEAN as an organisation and the centrality of ASEAN in our regional architecture. But yes, we can't do everything. Other partners may be better placed in some areas. I mean, we led with the European Union on the World Health Assembly resolution, for example. That was something we had capability in. We had a sort of deep understanding, including actually through the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security within DFAT, we had the capability to do that. Other things might be led on by other partners, even in an organisation like uh, the Human Rights Council, where we're serving our third year at the moment, we'll lead on some resolutions, other countries will lead on others. So I think there's probably if you to use the burden-sharing language, I think if we're all focused on a pretty clear objective, you know, peace, prosperity, two, two good things, then we can all contribute in a variety of ways. And I think there's a much more nuanced conversation going on about how we can best do that. For example, it doesn't mean because if we've got a particular interest in a multilateral institution, doesn't mean an Australian has to lead it but we're going to want someone who's well-qualified, who's got strong leadership skills and the knowledge to be able to make the organisation function well. So that's what we're going to be looking for. Let's talk about China. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of current events, but whatever anyone thinks about China and the debate has become increasingly divided, I don't think anyone would disagree with the view that for the foreseeable future, China's actions in the world and their impact on Australia are going to be highly consequential. So where should a young Australian, or any Australian for that matter, who wants to understand China begin? If you look at the media or the internet, you can find evidence to support almost any instinct, policy preference or prejudice you might have on the, the subject. You know China, you've contributed to Australian policy over a long time. What's your advice on points of entry into thinking about 
China. How can ordinary people process the reporting and commentary that barrages on a daily basis? Mm. Well, I mean, there's a wide range of answers depending, I suppose. I mean, you started up by saying a, you know, a young person starting out, how might they sort of come to grips with this? And, and it is a, a big subject. So I think one of the things that many sinologists, people who make a career out of a study of China, quickly come to realise is that the more they know, the more they realise they, they don't know, actually. So I think it certainly is a big a big subject, but it can be made accessible in a wide variety of ways. The ideal is, and unfortunately we've got a number of young Australians who are, who are willing to do this, is to dedicate themselves, and it does require dedication, to, to learn the language. And it, it's not something that can be uh, mastered in a, in a couple of years, even a full-time study. It, it takes longer than that. Obviously, there are a number of Australian institutions where you can make a start on all of that, and even you know, many more people start than master. Just having an understanding of the language, of a tonal language, of the characters, of the way the Chinese express themselves, an understanding of of history, of course, and then I've got bookshelves at home full of mm. uh, full of books on China. Um, I mean, one I really particularly enjoyed, and I think is a good starter is uh, The Age of Ambition, Evan Osnos. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. It's, it's a great book. Of course, any book about the uh, the Communist Party is a, a good book to, to read and there are a couple, you know, Party, 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 The Party. I mean, there, there are detailed biographies of, of Deng Xiaoping. I mean, there are anthologies of these things. There are there's a wide range of them. But a point I've made for a long time, and I wasn't unique as ambassador in Beijing doing this, I think all of my predecessors, back to Stephen Fitzgerald, our first ambassador, uh, after recognition in 72, all came to understand that as China looms ever larger, we need to be equipped with an understanding of it. And, and I said from 2011 to 2015, we really shouldn't put ourselves in the position where people are assuming leadership roles in Australia, whether it's you know the vice, a vice chancellor of a university or a ministerial role or a public service role or in the defence force or whatever, where you're going to need to be making decisions about China without ever having been or without sort of understanding it. Now, in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not necessarily going to say go there, but of course, it's the most amazingly diverse country and it's so much more than just uh, Beijing, Shanghai or Guangzhou, to be able to travel to the west, to Tibet, to Sichuan, to Xinjiang, to, you know, like a number of my predecessors, visited every every province and autonomous region. Uh, but I think having some understanding of the scale and the diversity is useful also. We do need people who will, you know, specialise in the ideological aspects of it, the theoretical aspects of it. And that's why, I mean, if I'm going to recommend more publications than I probably should, I mean, the news Centre on China in the World publish a, a fantastic yearbook every year. And if you've, if you've had a busy year and haven't been able to keep up with what's been happening in China, they always theme them. And, it, you know, they're quite thick. They're hundreds of pages long, but they're very accessible and readable. So I would say that any knowledge about China is useful. Uh, not everyone can be expected to specialise and not every organisation can necessarily be headed by a specialist, nor should it be. But I think knowing where to access expertise is really important. I had a look just last night, actually, for a different reason at the China Matters website. That's got 
a lot of useful material on it too. There are a number of, whether it's the Perth US Asia Centre or you know, main universities, they've all got, there's a vast amount of material there on China. I mean, Richard McGregor's books are, are great. There's a lot of good journalism on China too. And I think Australian newspapers and the ABC don't have many foreign correspondents anymore, not as many as they used to have. They've still got them in China, and I think just keeping up with what they're writing, what they're saying, and it's not just Australians for Australian outlets. There's some fantastic Australian journalists, uh, Buckley, for mm. example, Chris Buckley, who's unfortunately out of China at the moment uh, with the New York Times. So it never has material on China been so accessible, and I think the thing is to start wherever you interest takes you and follow it. You'll find it's never-ending. You said uh, you told Senate Estimates Committee last year that you thought both sides will have to work quite hard to manage what I think will be enduring differences in the relationship between China and, and Australia, and that's certainly been borne out in the months since. But I want to just probe you a bit on what working hard on relations means. How do we do that? and particularly in an environment where I think everyone would agree that China's become increasingly uh, abrasive and, in some cases, careless about diplomatic norms. Yes, well, you know, I thought very carefully about what I said at the time, and I, I meant it, and, and I suppose it, in some respects it has been borne out. But for a long time, and I think it's just worth reminding ourselves that when Australian prime ministers have sat down with their Chinese opposite numbers, for decades really, it's routinely been part of the conversation uh, that there's been an acknowledgement of differences on both sides. Now, often it's been the Chinese side that might have made that observation first. Sometimes it's been the Australian side that then provides, if you like, the chapeau, if I can put it that way, for a discussion about those particular points of difference. And of course, a number of them stem from values and they should be respected. Each of us have our national interests. Where that tends to become problematic is if one side tends to assert those national interests at the expense of the other. And that's what I mean. You have to work hard to maintain conversations, to understand each other. It is all too easy, even in diplomacy, where people are taking care to understand the perspective of the other side and to communicate with a great deal of precision. Sometimes people find our language a bit tortured, but it, there's often a reason for it. Even with diplomats, it is a relatively straightforward thing for misunderstandings to arise and, if you like, to, to fester. And although we're often talking about, uh, we are talking about national interests, the personal elements of it can become points of friction if they're, if they're not actually worked at. Now, over the years, I've had quite a number of what I would call, and you know, it's a bit of a euphemism sometimes, but I don't intend it to be a euphemism, robust conversations with Chinese counterparts. I mean, you have to do that to be clear about what your national interest is. But just because there are differences and just because they're robustly expressed, that does not in and of itself mean that you can't cooperate. And I think, again, to come back to Darren's question about where is the, the point of equilibrium 20 or 30 years down the track, I certainly hope it's in a place, this is not the sole answer, but I hope it's in a place where those differences are recognised and understood and there is still space, which might sort of grow or shrink a bit according to the circumstances, for there to be a mutual pursuit of opportunity to the benefit of both sides. So it's 
not just the work of diplomats. It's in a way it's got to be a national endeavour because Australia's economic strength derives in part, at least, from the interactions that we have with our trading partners. And China is our largest trading partner. It's not our largest economic partner, but it's our largest trading partner. Uh, we've got an interest in China's economy continuing to grow, but we've also got an interest in liberal trade and investment arrangements on both sides that, that don't discriminate and don't provide opportunities for coercion or punishment. On the theme of understanding China better, we recently interviewed your colleague, Harinda Sidhu, on the podcast. And of course, listeners will know until recently she was Australia's High Commissioner in India. And our first question to her was on the state of debate inside India regarding the role it should be playing in the world. So I'm wondering about an equivalent question with regards to China. What's your sense of the state of affairs today? Are there still open and live questions about the big issues of international affairs from different parts of the Chinese system? Or do you think these debates are largely settled and there's a more of a uniform view about what China should be doing and how it should understand the rest of the world? And I guess there's a, a sub part of this question, which is regarding Australia. I mean, has China made up its mind about Australia, especially on the degree of independence that is embodied in our own foreign policy? Mm, okay, that's another good question. Let me start with India. I've I visited India five mm. times as secretary, more often than I've been to any other country. And one of the things that I really notice when I go to India is exactly what you're talking about. A very lively debate, whether it's had around Harinda Sidhu's dining <laughs> table as High Commissioner, and I'm sure Barry O'Farrell's as High Commissioner now too, or whether it's in the bilateral meetings or whether it's in the media or whether it's publications or whatever it is. It is there is a huge debate running and an absolutely fascinating one, which has a huge amount of intellectual rigour in it and a great a degree of passion as well. And there are some fantastic books about Indian foreign policy too, which I'm sure Harinda would have recommended. Look, in China, it's, it's a bit different, but I, I do think there is also a difference. You've got to recalibrate. When you're living in a country, you're constantly absorbing so what, what's out there in, in, in the public domain. And, of course, as ambassador in Beijing, I would regularly have to the residents foreign policy thinkers. China's got a lot of capacity in that area through universities, through think tanks, former foreign policy practitioners who'd gone on to other roles. There's a lot of structure and organisation there and some people who really understand parts of the world that China needs to understand. But I did notice after the 18th Party Congress in 2012 when Xi Jinping became General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and then at the National People's Congress that followed in March 2013 when he became president. It, it took a little while for the penny to drop, but the academics and foreign policy thinkers that I'd have round to the residents in different combinations every few months or so, so I started to say, we're not getting the access that we used to get within our own system. And they were a bit puzzled by this. There'd been a change, obviously, at the very top, and they'd been used to being invited in, if you like, into the to ministries, into Zhongnanhai, even the mm. leader's compound, to be able to tell it like they saw it was, whether it was those who specialised in relationships with the United States or, or in our region or even, you know, in Australia. So it was quite striking. It took us a little while to sort of work out what was going on. I think it took them a little while to work out what was going on too. And bear in mind that was a time when the sort of hide and bide dictum was still alive and 
well and China didn't want to be too forward-leaning. It didn't think it was necessarily ready to assume a bigger role on the global stage. It wasn't convinced by the US language of the time. I remember the US ambassador to China at that time, Gary Locke, said in towards the end of 2011 at a reception I was present at, there was no problem in the world that couldn't at least be ameliorated even if it wasn't able to be solved by China mm. and the US working together. Well, you know, we're in a different place now and although there are clearly debates running, as you would expect in China, my sense is that they're not as openly in the public domain now and that some of the foreign policy commentators who I would previously have regarded as having a pretty deep understanding of Australia. And we've got a lot of Australian study centres at universities uh, around China. There are people who've devoted their academic lives to working on and with Australia. But when I read now what they say publicly, I think that nuance is gone, or at least it's not as publicly expressed. I think it's still possible to have conversations with individuals, but I think the, the space for genuine public debate has probably shrunk a bit. Has China made up a, its mind about Australia? I think one thing I've observed about the Chinese over the decades that I've had the privilege of the responsibility to, to work on aspects of the relationship is that they're very pragmatic, actually. And at the top levels of leadership, there are people, including Xi Jinping, who know our country well, have visited on a half a dozen occasions, who've had really good experiences here and do understand us. So at the moment, we're in a period of difference, respectfully expressed on our part. We would say that we are responding to actions that China has taken and that we are defending, if you like, our national interest. But none of that means that there won't be opportunities in future for us to work together on things where it makes pragmatic sense for us to do that. So I think Chinese are often, particularly at the moment, inclined to see Australia as a, an alliance partner of the United States, and we are, but we are also you know, a regional power with a lot to offer and a valuable partner for China as for every other country in this region. Well, thanks, Francis. Let's shift gears and just a couple of quick questions to finish off the interview. First, a question on behalf of our younger listeners and interns, the AIIA, who are considering a DFAT career. To what extent is the balance between generalists and specialists in Australia's diplomatic corps changing? I mean, should aspiring applicants to DFAT's graduate program look to gain a wide variety of experiences and skills as preparation to apply or look to develop deep subject matter expertise? Look, this is a debate, Darren, that sort of ticked backwards and forwards mm. a bit over the years. But if I just think back over the last few months, who have I turned to? What have we needed to, to get done in the crisis? And the answer is, and it sounds a bit boring and obvious, I suppose, is, is that we genuinely need both. We need people who are very quick, able to walk into a situation with no particular familiarity of it, but with a whole lot of smarts and capability to be able to roll up their sleeves and get on with something that's never been done before. 
But then we'd really need, and I mentioned them before, we need our health expertise, we need trade negotiators, we need economists, we need people who've got a deep understanding of human rights. We, we've we been building over the last number of years a much more of a focus on capability and of career anchors. So I would say for people who want to join us, and we certainly want to attract the best and brightest from diverse mm. backgrounds, if I can put it that way, from different parts of our country, from not just the big cities, but from rural and regional Australia, people who've got culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. We've got a number of outstanding Indigenous colleagues as well, and we want, of course, to be open to, to people with disability and people you know, with a whole range of different backgrounds. Diversity of thinking is what mm. I'm most looking for. So just really capable, keen people. I know a lot of people think you've got to study international relations, you have to learn however many languages, you have to do this, you have to do this. You don't have to do anything. We just want bright, curious, hardworking people who can think laterally and help us problem solve. And once they start with us, they can further develop expertise if they have it. I mean, I started being typecast as an economist. Mm. My first placement was in the international economic section. And then I reinvented myself a bit, you know, as the Taiwan desk officer and various other things. So I, I think flexibility, curiosity, but we, we certainly need specialists. Ministers expect really detailed answers to questions and policy development. But if everyone did that, there'd be no glue to hold the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. Finally, you've worked very hard on the issue of gender equality and you noted in a piece for the Lowy Interpreter last year that the department is open to models of flexible work. And the issue of flexible work is part of a much broader set of questions and trade-offs surrounding work-life balance. And I want to focus on two in particular. First, balancing two careers within a romantic partnership, especially in the foreign service where spending years uh, overseas is part of the job. Uh, and secondly, the competing demands of, of career and family, whether that's parenting or elder care or, or something else. What are some of your observations about the successful models of work-life balance that you've come across in your career? Well, I think there's a big question for everyone, right? It's sort of the question. I think it's very prominent. I can see this in the minds of graduates who join us, you know, whether they're single or already in, a, in some kind of a relationship. And it comes to a head also when people have got young children. I feel extremely fortunate, actually, to have celebrated my 30th wedding oh, anniversary last week with Rod. And with our four kids, mostly, I think, feeling that on balance, and sometimes it's an unbalanced judgment, that they learnt a lot from overseas postings and saw the world in different ways. But I equally wouldn't minimise the anxiety mm. that can come with that, that, the trauma sometimes that can come with that. And no matter how well parents know their children, they, they don't always mm. know what's going on inside their head. So I think these days, though, there are fewer rules about these things. And that's one of the things that I've been very determined to do and you know the times have sort of assisted me with this you don't have to spend three years overseas three years at home three years overseas three years at home anymore we've had people who who served overseas at some point haven't been overseas for more than a decade continue to be able to progress through the organization but I think everyone's got to sort of work it out for themselves and we as an organization need to be flexible and supportive and we put a lot of emphasis in the women in leadership strategy on flexible and remote working We've discovered that we were really only in the shallows on that. We've had to get in much deeper. We've realised we can and that we've got the technology to support people. But I think 
something that I often say to our staff, and I said it just on my way here to one of them, you need to tell us what you need to enable you to do the job that you do. And I wouldn't be in this role today if over the years at various points that were important to me, my colleagues hadn't shown flexibility and being willing to sort of cut me some slack to do this or to do this or not to do this or to do that. So I hope we're more inclined to see our colleagues as whole people, not just as professionals, and to recognise that there are times in people's lives when something Mm. other than work absolutely has Mm. to come first. Frances Adamson, thank you so very much for joining us for this 50th episode of Australia in the World. Thank you both. Thank you.